Welcome to the Filmlings Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast where we analyze all that goes into effective filmmaking. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Alex. And this is episode 58, Hepburn versus Hepburn, round two, the Kukor Corner. Say that five times fast. Kukor Corner, Kukor Corner. I can't. I can't do it. I dare you to do it at home. Um, and we're not totally sure if it's even Kukor or Kukor or whatever. Yeah. So we'll just not, have to wing it. <laughs> we're, we're not liable. Uh, for any injuries that may happen to your mouth. If anyone is wondering why we're so chummy today, it's because we're in the same room. We are. <laughs> we are. It's rare. I had, uh, I well, I, I don't want to say had. That feels like it was an obligation. I had the chance to come home to see my family um, after a very long season in New York and moving back to L.A., uh, but I'm happy to be back in Texas, and I'm happy to be sitting at the same table as my friend, as we so rarely get to do and do this podcast. Um, so maybe the jokes will be funnier? I don't know. I hope for your guys' sake they are. Maybe they we'll just be more distracted. They certainly are funnier to us. So uh, hopefully you get uh, some of that too. But that's not what we're talking about today. Today is actually uh, the second installment of the Hepburn versus Hepburn series that we've kind of started that isn't really a comparison between the two women so much as it is like a double character study based off of the fact that both Jonathan and I Love a Hepburn, but we love different Hepburns. We just do. Yes. I, I'm, I'm we love a, them both, but we love them both differently. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, I, uh, I'm, I'm Team Catherine, and Jonathan is Team um, Audrey. And we actually threw it to you guys out in the audience as to who, uh, what, what films we were going to do from the pair, the two of them, and you guys picked. And it just so happens <laughs> that you picked two films that were directed. By the same person, so and not, we didn't even realize we, this when we, didn't we even put know these this up until here. I start, looked up like where I could watch. I was trying to find my, where I could watch My Fair Lady, um, which, by the way, the answer is nowhere. Had to get a DVD. Um, oh, really? I didn't realize that. <laughs> yeah, no, but I mean, it's no big deal. My DVD collection has grown quite a bit since we started this podcast. That's a good thing. But um, it just so happens that both are directed by George Cougar. That's why uh, this episode kind of has two titles, Hepburn versus Hepburn, as well as The Cougar Corner. So you're going to get both a director's episode and more Hepburn fanboying from the two of us, me and Jonathan. But uh, before we talk about the films today, we need to talk about the episode that was an accident uh, in the bio of George Cukor, 1899 to 1983. And Jonathan is going to do that, not me. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah. So I'm just going to throw out a book that we've talked about before, which is Conversations with Great Filmmakers uh, from Hollywood's Golden Age at the American Film Institute. One of the books with the longest titles ever. Um, it's big, but, <laughs> it's thick, but it's not boring. Yeah, it's got some great conversations with various directors, including one on George Cukor, which is where I got a lot of this uh, introductory information. So basically, George Cukor is one of the directors who, at the beginning of uh, the sound era of Hollywood, was brought in because he was a stage director. And when Hollywood figured out that they can make movies with sound, everyone kind of freaked out because people knew how to 
tell great stories visually, but no one knew how to uh, speak. Basically, <laughs> they were all really terrible at, um, you know, delivering lines in a convincing way, uh, which is something that theater had been developing for hundreds and hundreds of years. So many uh, stage directors were brought in to kind of consult on certain films and others just to start directing films with audio uh, so that Hollywood could kind of figure it out and pull from another entertainment medium that had already uh, figured that that aspect of storytelling out. Um, some other highlights from his career, he actually directed Catherine Hepburn's first picture called A Bill of Divorcement, um, which is not the Catherine Hepburn movie that we'll be talking this week, but it's interesting to tie it into, uh, you know, these two biographies of these Hepburns. Um, and another just interesting milestone is that he directed... It's the Catherine Hepburn movie <laughs> that we deserve, but not the one that we're talking about right now. <laughs> exactly. Uh, thank you, Bat Alex. Um, he also directed... Oh, hey, I just came back from the coffee room. What? The, who's that guy in black who just left? <laughs> I have never seen Alex and Bat Alex in the same room together. <laughs> who's Bat Alex? You know, we'll never know. We'll never know. <laughs> Um, George Kikur also directed, he started directing um, Gone with the Wind, did a lot of the casting and set building and uh, several weeks or months of shooting. And then he was kicked off the project for unknown reasons, even to him. He wasn't really sure why. Um, and apparently some of the actresses um, would still come to him like uh, after they were done shooting and kind of just get some one-on-one -on -one training with him. Covert, <laughs> covert director. Exactly. Secret he director. It, like moonlighting. Um, so, but anyway, that's a very big movie that he could put his name to at least part of. Um, he said that most of the scenes that he shot when he was on the project actually ended up in the picture. Um, but over the course of his career, he kind of became known as a quote unquote women's director, which is a term that I've never heard associated with anyone else. But we'll it's kind of so golden age Hollywood, though. Yeah, I know. It's so like last century. It's ridiculous. Yeah. A woman's director. Same thing as a director, but 10 percent more expensive <laughs> and it comes in pink. Yeah, so we'll kind of speculate on why that is, and the fact that we're talking about these two movies specifically, and these two actresses even more specifically, will help hopefully shed some light on that term, uh, and we'll see what, what's going on there. So, about the movies, Alex, uh, talk us through our first one. Right, so uh, the Katherine Hepburn movie we're going to be talking about is The Philadelphia Story from 1940, one of her most popular movies and definitely one of her best. Um, in terms of Oscars, uh, it won Best Actor for Jimmy Stewart and it won Best Writing, um, Best Screenplay, and it was nominated in the categories of Best Picture, Best Leading Actress, Best Supporting Actress, and Best Director, uh, but did not win for any of those. Yeah, I believe Philadelphia Story was based on a stage play as well. So this is several, uh, several films from the Golden Age. Like most films were pulled from staged performances. Uh, and the same is true of My Fair Lady later in um, Hollywood's career. These movies are almost 25 years apart. And they're both great, both directed by the same man. And that's just like that amount of um, time in between and just that continuance of really great directing and very different directing uh, is is really interesting to me um, because our second film, My Fair Lady, is a musical, a musical that is based on a play called Pygmalion, uh, written by George Bernard Shaw, which is based on a myth 
uh, from by uh, by Greek people, <laughs> by Greek people, very uh, very old, very dead yeah. Greek people. It shows up in Ovid's Metamorphosis, but it probably pulls on a lot of much older mythology than that. So, but My Fair Lady, the film, uh, kind of swept the Oscars. It won Best Picture, Best Leading Actor, Best Director, Best Cinematography, Color. Best Costume Design, Color, Best Sound, Best Set Direction, Color, uh, and Best Music. Uh, and this film was also nominated for Best Supporting Actor, Best Supporting Actress, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Best Editing. Maybe it would have been shorter just to write a list of what awards this film was not nominated for. Yeah, it was a big winner at the Oscars. It's yeah. um, it's definitely, you know, one of the reasons that we include these Oscar uh, wins and nominations, other than it's a good way to introduce the film, is that it's a good way to remind both us and you guys, the audience, um, the response to the film in the time that it came out. Uh, And so whenever you you dig up a film uh, that has like eight Oscar wins, like this one does, uh, it makes you go, oh, that wasn't just a Technicolor musical. That was like a big deal. And, you know, this is one of those cases where you're like, wow, this is a big deal because... Um, there, there is certainly parts of it that don't conform to our, uh, 21st century social ideas, but it is still a very good film and very much worth talking about. And of course, you know, it's got that nice classical root to it that, um, helps it, uh, maintain its longevity being based on a myth and all. Yeah. And, uh, especially coming out in 1964, which is a year in which a lot of uh, musicals that have stood the test of time came out, including Mary Poppins, A Hard Day's Night, uh, The Unsinkable Molly Brown, um, and just a lot of others. This was kind of like in a boom of musical time in Hollywood. And we've talked about uh, some of musicals in our musical episode, um, so it'll be interesting to bring some of that conversation into this one. But... We are going to start off with digging into the Philadelphia story from 1940. So, Alex, why don't you kick us off with that? Okay, I will kick you off. Um, I mean, kick off the story. Okay, so the Philadelphia story is a comedy starring Katherine Hepburn. Uh, she plays the elder daughter of a wealthy family um, who's kind of had a bit of love troubles in her past. She married... Um, Uh, maybe childhood sweetheart is the right name, but someone who she grew up with, um, but then didn't get along with when they were married. Um, And that man is played by Cary Grant uh, as C.K. Dexter Haven. Um, And they, their marriage falls apart really fast. It's kind of like the first shot of the film is him getting kicked out of the house. Um, And then pushing her in the face. Yeah. Yeah. Which is kind of, Violent in retrospect, but maybe it wasn't considered as violent at the time. Well, it's also a plot point. It because, does become a plot yeah. point. Someone catches it on on uh, on uh, on. I was I was going to say video, but this is 1940. <laughs> Somebody catches it on their flashbulb camera, um, and then uh, it, it kind of spreads out and becomes a story that he abused her and so on. It's a it's a big deal, and uh, love troubles seem to run the family. Her father and mother are separated it seems i don't think they're publicly divorced because her father is like a uh, politician so you can't actually do that as a politician in the mid-century um but anyway she's getting married again uh and that's where we are at the start of the film she's getting married to um a, a nouveau rich person 
Um, I probably slaughtered nouveau. that term. Nouveau. <laughs> yeah. Nouveau riche. Um, a man named George Kittredge, uh, who is kind of scummy, as we learn over the course of the film, but he is a man who started off as poor and then became rich. Um, and she thinks he's wonderful because he's a man of the people and he's everything that her ex-husband C.K. Dexter is not. Um, and there's she's planning on marrying him. Of course, her little sister doesn't want her to marry uh, this George Kittredge person. She wants uh, her to get married to C.K. Dexter again. And of course, um, C.K. Dexter Haven, uh, Cary Grant's character manages to rope in some reporters because I think... The, the plot gets a little complicated and it's a little, oh, yeah, a little, <laughs> <laughs> and it, it he def- kind of wants to, wants to stir up trouble at this wedding because yeah. he's not totally over he her. Has I some think. other external yeah. pressures on him. That's, that's kind of forcing him into the circumstance. Oh, that's true. I forgot and, about that. It is very complicated. <laughs> yeah, it is very complicated. Um, and I don't want to talk about him here cause they, they kind of become bigger plot points, bigger reveals down the line. And even then the specifics of the reveal don't matter so much as the fact that the the what uh, is what they mean so uh and and it kind of reveals how scummy george kittredge is um but anyway the reporters who get brought in are played by none other than james stewart on the one hand and then um who, who plays mike connor and then he has a partner who is his photographer uh liz Embry, and they're like kind of a thing Kind yeah, of not a it's, thing. It's an unacknowledged thing where she likes him and he sees that there's a thing there, but is kind of putting off it's any undefined. kind of romantic. Yeah. Let's not put labels on it. They set their Facebook relationship to it's complicated. It's complicated. Um, that could be the title of this movie, but let's not name our <laughs> movies that because that's a lazy way to name movies. But anyway, Jimmy uh, Stewart is a publisher and uh, definitely not a member of the upper class. And he kind of hates the upper class. He's also like a poet on the side. Um, well, yeah, he wants to be a poet and uses journalism to pay the bills. That's what it kind so of So he can be like, a poet because yeah. poetry doesn't feed you. Um, and so Unless you have a patron. As we get into <laughs> as that, that ends up being an insult over yeah. the course of the film. Um, and you kind of end up with all of these characters in one house. Um, and due to uh, some interesting circumstances, some characters pretend to be other characters for a part of the movie. Um, I don't want to delve too far into the ins and outs because they're all fairly surprising and very fun to watch. Uh, I don't want to ruin this experience if you haven't watched this movie. Um, Plus, it just gets complicated and bogged down. Yeah. But over the course of the film, Tracy kind of uh, delves into um, changing her worldview and learns to have uh, compassion for the weakness in humanity that she didn't have when she was married to C.K. Dexter Haven. And Uh, in herself also. And in herself as well. She learns to be kind to herself over the course of the film. Um, Or to be real with herself at least. At least real with herself. You're right. Um, and towards, I, I mean, it actually has a really nice ending. Yeah. It has a very complicated, very yeah. screwball ending. A lot of this film kind of dives into that realm of screwball, but, um, but then it kind of transcends that towards the end when all of these character dynamics and personalities that we've been building up and exposing and, uh, mixing together kind of all become 
cleared up in a way that none of them really expect, but kind of is the right way for it to go. It feels right at the end, yeah. which is something you want from the ending of a movie. Yeah. You, you want to, if you can both be surprised at what happens at the end of the movie and feel like, oh, this satisfied. is the, definitely the way it should end. Yeah. Satisfied is a good word, yes. Then you have hit the nail on the head for an ending. Um, although it's something that's very hard to do. And the fact that they did it in this movie, both plot-wise and in terms of the character development over the course of the film, um, is really impressive and part of what makes it uh, kind of a lasting classic. Um, and of course, you know, the fact that you have so much star power on screen yeah. is definitely helpful. <laughs> I mean, just putting Cary Grant and Jimmy Stewart into the same movie right. on its own is like a big deal. But then also putting Katherine Hepburn in right, there, in the caught, middle. kind of yeah. like caught between them, is amazing. Yeah. And Catherine Hepburn's so good in this movie. Yeah, she Ugh. is. We get to see a lot more depth to her than we did in Bringing Up Baby, where she was a lot of fun, but the same kind of quirky character mostly throughout. And this one, she goes through the ringer, man. Like, her emotions and her introspection uh, just all gets laid out, and she carries it all brilliantly. There are points where she's very fun and she's putting on airs and tricking people and then there are points where people have kind of you know slapped reality in her face um if not literally <laughs> yeah uh then uh and she has to come to terms with that um and uh yeah so her we definitely see a maturation of her abilities in this film and just how she can definitely carry an entire film on her shoulders, even though she has she has uh, some of the weight lifted off by her co-stars in <laughs> right. this one specifically. Right. It's such a good cast. Yeah, it's uh, great. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, in Bringing Up Baby, she played, a very, like you said, a very crazy, fun character. And I think uh, her character in this film is also crazy and fun in a different way because it's a different character but at the same time she's very real like yeah like it's she's almost got, like her 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 fun crazy quirkiness in this is a cover-up of some other yeah. stuff that's underneath it's like it's like an onion it has layers yes <laughs> we're now comparing <laughs> Catherine hepburn to shrek but in a good way in a good, in a way. good way uh i mean she has she has a lot of different strengths and a lot of different weaknesses it's just a really good character yeah. there's a lot of meat uh to chew on in that role for Catherine hepburn and she she uses it and it's wonderful yeah. and yes the the performance is um uh transatlantic in nature, um, which, which is, we've touched on before. Yeah, yeah, and it's not a bad thing. I think it, it definitely dates movies to a yeah, certain extent. But I love it. I but love that not, whole vibe. Yeah, just just because a movie is dated doesn't necessarily mean it's mm -hmm. bad. It just means you have to know what to expect. And in this movie, it just means that people talk a bit differently. And even the classism in the film is pretty transatlantic. I feel like a lot of that. The classism is very <laughs> transatlantic. Comes from a very European sensibility. Yes. It's like either you're an aristocrat or you're part of the scum. Right. <laughs> and you can't pretend to be not scum just because you have money. <laughs> yes. Yes. And I don't. We know. even get into that in My Fair Lady. So it's yeah. And I don't even know if like a reporter, you would technically consider them lower class. Yeah. Except for the fact that they're not the uppermost class. Right. I think that's what really the division they're working on in this off of this film. It's like either you're the 1% or 
or you're trash. <laughs> but uh, we even saw that division specifically with an heiress and a journalist in uh, It Happened One Night. So these are like very well-established yeah. dynamics. And uh, I think one of the reasons that this role fits so well for Catherine Hepburn is it kind of draws off of her upbringing. Um, I was about to say she wasn't super rich, but her family was kind of super rich. Like they grew up in the upper crust yeah. of Connecticut, East Coast, not Philadelphia, but still East Coast. Um, with a lot of money and a very nice house and a big old farm that they didn't actually have to farm on. Um, and so Catherine Hepburn was very much upper crust, both at the start of her life and then, you know, becoming a Hollywood actress yeah. tends to keep you upper crust. As she would bring around characters like... Uh, um Howard Hughes. She did. Yeah. Catherine, yeah, she would bring Catherine characters Hepburn like, like dated, uh, uh, Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes around to her house. And uh, we saw that just in the movie The Aviator, which at least has some. Uh, I always, whenever <laughs> I think of Catherine Hepburn's uh, family, like her personal life, I always think of the scenes from The Aviator. Yeah, exactly. Like, and you can just tell in that movie, like, how upper crust white bread yeah. they are. Like, but still, Completely. they seem like fun people. I mean, I didn't. They're, and again, it you get into uh, we get into this in the Philadelphia story um, that the the up the upper class view of the world is shaded and colored by them being upper class, but it doesn't necessarily mean that uh, they're bad people. What was it that Jimmy Stewart says in the film? Oh, you, shoot. You can't yeah. blame rich people. They're just born that way. Yeah, that was like a recurring line. Oh, man, I totally forgot what it is specifically. Yeah. So, yeah, like we said, this film has a lot of uh, depth to it, um, but it still falls in that vein that we've seen a lot, like with It Happened One Night, which is screwball comedy. And then you put these great actors, you know, we've talked a lot about Jimmy Stewart and Cary Grant before, um, and this falls in both of their a more lighter range of characters because we've seen them do some very dark characters and some very fun characters. Um, and so you kind of put that all together and you have a lot of fun. And then you also get that range where we can, um, you know, bring out a lot of complicated elements that goes into love and marriage and just uh, relationships, platonic and romantic and, you know, choosing love, uh, for practical reasons versus for romantic reasons and all this kind of stuff. And it all comes together in this film and the directing and the acting just all come together really well to make this just a really fun and touching and memorable film. I'll just never get over how perfect this role is <laughs> yeah. for, for Catherine yeah. Hepburn. It was a very good pick. and I, It shows I mean, her off so well. It won in a landslide, too, mm -hmm. in, the, in the poll, and I think there's a reason for that. Yeah, because uh, if you've seen it, then you probably love this movie. Yeah. And if you know anything about Catherine Hepburn, you know she was in yeah. uh, the Philadelphia story. So good good job picking, y'all. <laughs> good, good work. One more thing we should probably throw out... Um, uh, relating to this movie is that this movie was remade um, about 10 or 15 years after this uh, as a musical called High Society starring um, Grace Kelly as Catherine Hepburn's role and also Frank Sinatra and Bing Crosby uh, and Louis Armstrong is in there too uh, and obviously it's a musical because um, how can you have Frank Sinatra and Bing Crosby in a movie that's not a musical yeah that's just musical um, 
That's a musical formula. That's <laughs> so what you're with this them. film has a life of its own after that, which I think high society is is well liked, but the Philadelphia story is still kind of the pinnacle, uh, definitive version of this story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Jonathan, this morning uh, for breakfast, I made myself some waffles, and then ten to fifteen minutes later, I remade it as waffles, but with peanut butter and jelly in between. <laughs> I Hollywooded it. I also want to take a moment to kind of talk about how casting and roles worked in Golden Hollywood versus how they worked. Yeah, because we're talking about studio system, like yeah, deep studio system. Deep studio system. <laughs> right. So uh, by the time Audrey Hepburn comes around um, in the 60s, you know, method acting had kind of made its mark on Hollywood in the movie industry. And roles started to, uh, started to change. It started to become... Uh, you know, this thing where an actor kind of wanted to disappear into a role or embody as a role as best as they could. Um, but back in the studio system, you don't see that ever, if at all. Um, you tend to see uh, actors cast in a role to more or less play themselves, but with a slightly different twist on them. If you think of all the movies that Jimmy Stewart was in, he's always Jimmy Stewart. He doesn't talk differently in like any of his roles he pretty much talks the same um with his pauses and Cary Grant too who's also in this film talks very much the same way um in all of his movies whether he's playing very nice guy although he typically plays a guy with shades of gray and Mm -hmm. there's there's a reason for that you always cast Cary Grant as a guy with shades of gray um or in just a straight up comedy role like Arsenic and Old Lace right or um uh, bringing up baby but you know this is this is a perfect example of that golden age casting where Catherine Hepburn again I, I'm not going to stop talking about how perfect the casting is so there's actually an interesting story about how this film came about dun, uh, dun, dun. because this is at the point I believe we talked about in the last uh, Hepburn versus Hepburn episode that there was a period of time where Catherine Hepburn was considered box office poison. 1939, the article came out labeling about seven to eight stars in Hollywood as box office poison. Total bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) That article was total bullshit. Uh, It wasn't really based on any numbers. There was no uh, corroborating evidence. It was all politics. Box office numbers, but it was very much politics. And Catherine Hepburn was one of the people on the list. Yeah, so this was the film that kind of brought her back from that, brought her back into the limelight. And uh, what happened is she actually owned the rights to this play. Um, oh, and freaking brilliant. <laughs> and insisted on doing it herself with two other big-name stars. Oh, there you go, Catherine. She wanted... Make those money moves. <laughs> she had wanted Clark Gable and Spencer Tracy, but through various things, they ended up with uh, Cary Grant and Jimmy Stewart, which ended up being perfect obviously so this is a really interesting situation especially in this um environment where the studios kind of have all the power and have in a lot of cases the power to keep an actor down or bring them up just by their own will basically but Catherine Hepburn had this property that she knew would do really well and she knew that she could play for all the reasons that Alex has been uh expostulating and I'll keep saying them (laughs) I'll keep saying them you can pull me down from this tree, but I'll keep saying them. And so she knew she had that card to play, and she played it and put her back on top. And uh, George Cukor was the the director who helped get you know all of that done. And uh, 
you know, as I've been saying, everything came together really well. Do you think he was chosen because he was, quote, a woman's director? And that's the thing that we'll we'll get into because this film is very, um, it, it has a lot of emotions going into it. It has a lot of character dynamics and there are very, there's a very similar feel to the way that the, the romance and the clash of, um, romance versus intellect and that kind of thing happen in My Fair Lady. Uh, and I think that that's kind of what people are talking about. They're talking about George Cukor as a director um, who can really get to the heart of things and he can get, uh, he can help actors bring out this this complicated emotional relationship with each other as opposed to directors who, uh, like Hitchcock, are really good at just Laying it out and just <laughs> making cock. it happen, yeah. And uh, yeah. and you know, this is uh, this is a thing we'll see when we get into the plot of My Fair Lady. But uh, the female characters in George Cukor's uh, films tend to be pretty well rounded, yeah. Which very much more well rounded and strong characters. Not strong in the sense that they're like mighty. But strong in the sense that they're, yeah. you know, they've got strengths, they've got weaknesses, they're fleshed out. They're they're not two D cardboard cutouts of characters. They're full fleshed out characters, like Catherine Hepburn is in the Philadelphia Story. They're not just silly women. Yeah, and that's uh, like that's actually one of the things that he talks about in this interview is that in and by just silly women, real quick, I just want to flesh this out. A lot of times when you go back to old films, characters. Are tr- uh, female characters especially are treated as oh that's just a woman character that's just how they act which is wrong and yeah. is a sign of both you know you know not right social views but also just lazy directing lazy work yeah um, and writing I and mean writing. at a fundamental level yeah 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 all of the characters should be real people George Cukor was there to help make that happen. Uh, in in these films, of course, with a personality as strong as Catherine Hepburn, it's hard for that to not happen <laughs> right, exactly. in your movie. Like it's just going to kind of just happen by default, almost because she's there. Yeah, she wears the pants in the movie. Literally, she was famous <laughs> for wearing pants. And if you noticed, uh, the little sister character in the film wears pants uh, at the beginning too. She does. Like, that's she a- does. She and one of the reasons. Uh, I mean, it used because it used to be that women didn't wear pants unless they were doing sporty things. And Catherine Hepburn did do sporty things, but then she also just wore pants in public. Yeah, and that became- and that's even a joke in the movie that she can jump up on the horse and then her uh, her so- George K- Kittredge, the loser guy. Yeah, yeah, he's trying to get on the horse and just falls off. Um, but yeah, that's one of the things. Uh, going back to female characters, George Cukor was talking about how in a lot of other kinds of movies like westerns, you know, there's a female character in there as you know in the whorehouse or just like as the damsel in distress or whatever there's all these caricatures and he was kind of lamenting the fact that there are not a lot of very well-developed female characters and he also talks about another interesting dynamic is that there were were a lot of um, male stars at that time who flourished in genres like westerns and stuff where uh, they could play the tough guy really well but they couldn't act with women or with women who had a lot of depth to their characters. And so you have to pick out actors like uh, Jimmy Seward and Cary Grant who have um, that lighter side to their personality and to their um, on-screen persona. They're okay with being sensitive on screen. Yeah, they can be sensitive. They can be tough when they need to. Um, but but yeah, there's, there's certain people 
that uh, George Cukor can bring together in order to get all of that depth to come across. Because if you have the depth in the script and in the female character, but not in the male character, then it's all going to kind of fall apart because it's all one-sided. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that makes uh, the films, you know, when, when, when they're not just all 2D cutouts, it, it adds to kind of that longevity factor that I like to talk about with films and certainly both my fair lady and the Philadelphia story have kind of stuck around. Yeah. Um, if not in the person on the street, imagine, uh, streets imagination, then definitely in the, um, uh, art or movie lovers imagination. Yeah, exactly. So moving on to my fair lady in 1964, um, which is practically a lifetime in Hollywood terms. So much had changed at that point, uh, from 1940, but we come to this show, which is based on a play, based on a myth, which I'm sure we'll get to. But the premise is that we start off uh, at this street corner where a bunch of people are trying to get a taxi in the rain. And this uh, girl is trying to sell flowers to all the people. And she has a very Cockney accent. Um, and another guy. She also I'm, likes to scream a lot. Yeah, she's. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> The screaming drives me nuts, by the way. Yeah, well, that's... But, it, but it's an important part of the... Totally the point. <laughs> it's totally the point. Um, because also, I did it like two octaves too low, but... Yeah, that was very it. low. <laughs> there's, a, there's a man uh, there who is writing down everything that she's saying, and there's a big hubbub about that. Um, and it turns out that he is a linguist named uh, Henry Higgins, uh, and he meets up with this other guy named um, Mr. Uh, Pickering, who they were both coming to meet each other and they found each other through this but he talks about how terrible her accent is and how terrible all the english are for not teaching uh their people how to speak correctly um because you can imagine the all the varying accents uh of english and then you throw in scottish and irish and they they have a nice jab at america uh in the first song as well but eventually uh eliza who's Fight the girl me, england <laughs> right uh, they did, and they lost. <laughs> and then they burned down our capital. <laughs> they, well. So it's been it's been a bit tit for tat. So it ends up that uh, the flower girl named Eliza uh, goes to Professor Higgins and says that she wants uh, lessons, speech lessons. Uh, he had been boasting that he could turn her into a princess or he could bring her out into society and pass her off as anything if he could just train her. So he ends up taking taking this on. Pickering actually bets him on it um, and says that he'll provide everything needed um, for Henry Higgins to train Eliza. And then at the end of however long, a year or so, uh, they are going to six months. Okay. At the end of six months or so, they're going to take her to uh, the embassy and and pass her off in front of the the highest of the high class. Um, and so that is what ends up happening. And through this, Eliza has to learn not only how to speak properly, but also how to act properly. Um, but that's all kind of put on this uh, 
you know, put in relief with the relationship dynamics between Eliza and Henry Higgins, who just has a complete contempt for women and really everybody, uh, and Pickering, who is always very kind and genial. Uh, and then Professor Higgins's mom is thrown into the mix. And uh, there's another family um, that they meet in some social outings uh, where a man named Freddie falls in love with uh, Eliza. And um, it's it's very interesting character study um, with a somewhat vague ending, um, which uh, George Bernard Shaw actually kind of ties up a lot of loose ends at the end of uh, his play Pygmalion. Um, and just to give a little bit of um, very historical background, the myth of Pygmalion um, revolves around a sculptor who uh, had, uh, like Henry Higgins, a complete contempt for women, and but ended up sculpting a woman that he thought was the most beautiful thing in the world, and uh, the goddess Aphrodite ended up bringing it to life for him, and he fell in love with it. Um, and so it's kind of this underlying theme, uh, you know, in from that weird Greek thing <laughs> that the Greeks like to invent a lot of strange romance stories. Um, but from that, George Bernard Shaw brought a, a story about what happens when uh, we have created something that we're extremely proud of and what is our relationship to that and what is a healthy relationship to that and what is not a healthy relationship to that. And what does that look like when uh, that creation involves another human being? Um, and how you treat that person. So there's a lot that goes on to this, like we saw with uh, the Philadelphia story, but all of those levels of um, relational complexity are are brought out very nicely by uh, George Cukor. And actually played by, so Eliza obviously is played by Audrey Hepburn, I should have said that at the beginning, uh, and Rex Harrison plays Professor Henry Higgins, who is our other lead, uh, and Rex Har Harrison actually uh, played Henry Higgins in George Bernard Shaw's play Pygmalion on the stage. Uh, and so he has brought, you know, his original portrayal into the film. And I believe that Eliza's dad is also the same actor from uh, the stage. Maybe not the original actor, but he played it for several years. Eliza's dad is just a great character. <laughs> oh, a complete bum. Yeah. <laughs> but he loves being a bum, and that's the greatest thing. I mean, at least, he, you know what? If you're going to pick something to do, you might as well be good at it. Yeah. So if you're going to be a bum, be a good bum. He sings an entire song about other people doing work for him. Yeah, he has his whole philosophy is that uh, he knows that he doesn't deserve the money, but he's going to ask people for it anyway because he needs to eat and drink just like anybody else and drink way more than anybody else. <laughs> Yep. Yep. Um, yep. 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 And, you know, uh, relationally, and especially talking about um, what we just talked about with how um, George Cukor treats female characters, it's interesting to see the transition um, in Higgins' uh, perspective of Eliza over the course of the film to see her go from this thing that he's sculpted to, to reference back to the myth to realizing that she's a full human being mm -hmm. with thoughts and feelings and strengths and weaknesses and emotions, wants, desires, you know, all that stupid shit we do <laughs> as humans. Um, and, and, and so, you know, you might start off this film thinking that the cat, that um, uh, the Audrey Hepburn character is almost mistreated, not in the same way that the Catherine Hepburn character is treated in the Philadelphia story. But over the course of the film, you really see uh, 
that her, the perspective of her uh, is definitely being coded by the perspective that Higgins has of her. Yeah. Um, which is a really clever way to do it, to kind of align uh, the audience with uh, his growing perspective of realizing that women are people too. Yeah, because there's this the film and the whole story is kind of based on this understanding of classism um, in that, you know, kind of correlating the lowest of the low class with dirt, literally. Uh, I mean, there are so many epithets that (laughs) Henry Higgins uses for Eliza, Mm -hmm. like this squashed cabbage leaf or this baggage and all that kind of stuff. Even just terms of like art direction, like all of the poor people are literally just covered in dirt. Even when it doesn't really make sense that they're covered in dirt, like why Eliza has dirt on her face constantly at the start yeah. of the movie doesn't make a hundred percent sense. But they also sense. say like she's never taken a bath before. Like that's, <laughs> that's well, that would explain the dirt. Um, but yeah, it's it's uh, and Cucor talks about um, also like oh my god, what is the smell? I know. Oh but no, no. <laughs> you kind of get that whole sense through the art direction, which is one of the things I want to talk about because uh, you know that street where they you are. You know, it won an Oscar. Yes, I know. It uh, is all brown. And just like grimy and dirty and browns and greens and earthy colors. Uh, and then when we move into Henry Higgins's house, it's got a lot more color. There's uh, reds and greens and patterns. And so many patterns <laughs> in his house. Um, and then we move to like the, uh, the race when it's all black and white and uh, in the costumes and stuff. And the costume design is just so fantabulous and uh like people will reference this movie if they see a hat that's just way too gaudy um because there are so many gaudy (laughs) hats they they use so many gaudy hat gags in the race scene yeah there's like a a woman with a hat that's so big she can't see on one side Uh and so like her husband's trying to look at her in the face and he's like walking around her in a circle there's two women that are wearing the exact same thing and they just keep giving each other dirty looks and (laughs) And it looks like they're constantly looks like two ships giving each other dirty looks yeah exactly oh man Um, also i just love the race scene in particular yeah it's so well done and they all even the way that all of the um all of the rich people freeze and don't do anything but look when when the race is going on. And then we get that nice contrast at the end, which is totally unexpected. Well, you, yeah, you don't but see you it coming to, at all. You have where to, Eliza, where the, ra- the, the race happens, uh-huh. the running of the horses happens, and Eliza just screams out suddenly in this Cockney accent, Get your move on, the, the horse's name! She says, come on, Dover, move your blooming ass. And just everyone gasps and some lady faints and everything. But you put that in contrast with the opening of the scene, which is this song about uh, literally if you listen to all the words, they're saying things like, um, I have never been so keyed up. My face is flushing. My heart is racing. And they're all just like the most deadpan so poised (laughs) they're basically mannequins they're so deadpan talking about how excited they are but they just have no emotions and then eliza comes in and actually shows that those emotions and that excitement and they just can't handle it it's like that one scene is like the greatest five minute satire on upper class (laughs) yeah no the contrast is really wonderful just in terms of characters but you're right it's the whole movie kind of almost pokes fun at the upper class, mm-hmm. I mean, it doesn't almost, it does, for um, hiding their emotions and expressions behind this veneer mm-hmm. of, um, of English language. Um, 
And even, you know, what's always irked me ever since I read such and such an article in school about um, the upper class English reforms of like the early eight, or 19th century, where all of the upper class English kind of like set and kind of changed how they speak, which is how you get the super proper way that Professor Higgins speaks in the right. film. So, and, and you'll hear stuff, I don't know how true it is, but you hear stuff about how Americans actually speak closer to how Shakespeare would have, Shakespeare's plays would have been pronounced rather than the upper crust English. Right. Um, so, you know, when Professor Higgins like bashes Americans and that opening thing, you know, yeah, and it's, I mean, yeah. there's so many levels. I mean, things like, you know, we wouldn't have spelling if we didn't have a dictionary. You know, as soon as someone decides to write down the rules, the rules, you know, start existing and certain, suddenly so, some people are wrong in how they mm-hmm. spell things or whatever. So audience, I want you to think about whether or not there are <laughs> rules written down for the Filmings podcast. <laughs> really consider it. So many arbitrary <laughs> rules. Yeah, and it's actually, you know, kind of going off from that uh, idea of language and the separation of uh, emotion in the higher cl- in the upper class. It's interesting that Henry Higgins actually shows a lot of emotion. It's just it's just usually very crass, and it's actually something that in uh, George Bernard Shaw's Pygmalion is kind of brought out a little bit more. Is this idea that Henry Higgins is a very crass and unkempt person, uh, and his housekeeper literally scolds him for it as soon as he takes in Eliza and is like, you need to stop cussing, you need to clean up after you eat, you need to not be all sloppy and stuff like that, which is so interesting because that's kind of his whole point of pride is how much better he is than her, but he has all of these habits that are not better than her at all. I love how he keeps talking. He, he talks himself up through the entire film. Yeah. And he's like, I'm never rude after he's been rude. Yeah. <laughs> like and then, right after you know, the, the most pointed example of that is his uh his song about why women can't be like men and he ends it with why can't a woman be like me because that's he's kind that's of really what he wants <laughs> he wants all people to be like to him. be like him or at least his idolized version of himself which he doesn't actually live up to right exactly which is kind of parallels with the uh, Catherine Hepburn's character from the Philadelphia story and that's something that I want to talk to and talk about when we get into to overall notes um but just staying in this film and talking about Audrey Hepburn, our Hepburn uh, for this film, it's really interesting. This film also shows off a really nice range that uh, Audrey Hepburn is, is able to bring because this character has a very extreme arc. You know, characters should always have an arc, and especially when we're talking about very developed female characters. Um, but in this film, you know, you've got Eliza going from literally two, going between two different archetypes or stereotypes of characters and then having those two characters battle within herself because after she has been turned into this very proper and upper class woman uh and they go to this ball that was that was her test and and uh she passes essentially she doesn't know what to do with herself anymore she's like she's been kind of carried along by this thing but now She's she's a different person and she has no connections in this new world that she's in and she can't go back to the world that she came from, which is always what Henry Higgins is saying. You just go back where you were. It's fine. It'll be fine. And it's like, no, she can't. She's had so many different experiences and she has changed so many things within herself that, you know, you can't go back to that place and and be the same person. Uh, And so there's there's just a lot of dynamics going on. And um, 
Of course, uh, we related uh, Catherine Hepburn's role this week to her upbringing, and we should talk about um, Audrey Hepburn's upbringing in relation to uh, her upbringing in My Fair Lady. Yeah, which and we touched on so a little she, bit in the last yeah. episode. And and during when she was very young, like she was born in 1929, so for the duration of like the 30s, the you know the first eight nine years of the 30s. Eight, nine years of her life almost. Mm-hmm. You know, she was being raised in like literally an aristocratic setting as the daughter of an English diplomat in Brussels, Belgium. But then World War II happened and kind of ruined her childhood. Yeah. Um, which it did to a lot of people. Um, they a lot moved of people the, who were children. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's how childhoods get ruined, Jonathan. Yes. Uh so her mother, because her father had left the family at this time, uh, her mother uh, moved her to the Netherlands and where they thought they'd be safe. They weren't safe. Um, and she kind of had to live through the uh, German occupations from like the age of 10 to like the age of 15. Um, but beforehand, she'd been a trained ballerina. She didn't have to like learn how to speak English right? because she knew that growing up and probably fairly properly too, considering she was born of an English diplomat. Um, but she knew what it was to be hungry and to be in need. Because, or and in fear for yeah, her life and her I think existence. last time we talked about how just like even her malnourishment kind of affected her development growing up. And so like this, yeah, she faced a lot of the same struggles that Eliza Doolittle yeah. does in the beginning yeah. of the movie. You know, that's actually kind of a big part of Hollywood history, especially when you're talking about, um, uh, the, the ideal female archetype that, that was mm-hmm. in vogue at a certain time, which if you're interested in hearing more about that, go talk, go listen to, you must remember this, which we've plugged a billion right. times and let's plug it one more time. Um, <laughs> But, you know, Audrey Hepburn's upbringing, uh, one, as a ballerina, which if you learn uh, to, if you, a lot of people who undergo ballet training from a young age tend to have thinner but very lean, strong builds. uh, And then also malnourishment, surviving five or six years of occupation by the Germans, kind of led to her having a very different body shape than most leading ladies in Hollywood at the time. But she... Managed with a very good costume designer. She managed yeah, to become... Yeah, which we talked about last time. Yeah. Uh, we, and which is a very big part of this movie, too, like yeah. we've been talking about. In fact, that entire story gets kind of paralleled in the story uh, for Funny Face, the other musical that right. Audrey Hepburn did, <laughs> which I didn't even realize she did, too. Um, but yeah, so she does know what it's like to be, a, you know, low yeah. in society and, and then go through hard stuff. Becoming an American leading lady actress surrounded by, you know, essentially American high class, which is a Hollywood yeah. celebrity. Especially Hollywood celebrity high class. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, this kind of, uh, you know, there's a parallel there too with uh, Audrey's life and this, and this character. So it's really interesting how these two films reflect on the actresses that, that portrayed them and how I assume those the background of these two actresses was able to, um, you know, help them portray these characters so well and so uh, in depth and compellingly. So, yeah, so now we're kind of bringing these two films into contrast with each other. I think that the character dynamics and the themes that these two films deal with are really interesting to look at together because you have the Philadelphia story, which is, uh, deals a lot with a woman who has a much too high opinion of herself and uh, 
can't can't see the humanity in herself. She never can admit that she's been drunk or has had any kind of faults uh, in her life. And then you have My Fair Lady, which is about a man who has way too high of an opinion of himself uh, and a woman who is trying to have a better opinion of herself because she literally has the lowest opinion of herself and wants to become something better. Uh, and the way that the that the woman, either who has too high of an opinion of herself or who needs to have a higher opinion of herself, interact with the male characters and the way that the male characters view them. Uh, for example, you have in My Fair Lady, Freddy, who puts Audrey Hepburn on this pedestal similar to the way that Catherine Hepburn puts herself on a pedestal and wants people to put her on a pedestal. Uh, contrasted with Henry Higgins, who never sees her as anything. He never acknowledges her, which is the primary conflict in the film. Um, and so there's just so many different uh, man-woman relationships that go on and that through... Uh, the different dynamics in these two films coming at it from two different angles uh, kind of flesh out this really broad swath of uh, the human experience um, in a way that, you know, again, George Cukor is able to uh, let these actors kind of do their thing and bring out these great emotional moments in a way that other directors who are more uh, geared towards like heavy action scenes or scenes of... Um, really strong masculinity maybe maybe wouldn't have the uh, ability to bring out in the most compelling way. Right, right. And I think we can both agree that the term women's director is dated and unnecessary. Yeah. You should be able to just say director and have it mean the same thing. Like all directors well should be able... director or yeah, something. Yeah, all, all directors should be able to produce well-rounded uh, performances from their actors. Yeah, regardless and emotional of connections gender. between characters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you can't do that, what are you directing? Yeah, but certainly in the context of the time compared to your typical treatment of female characters, you could definitely consider George Cukor a, a women's director in Golden Age Hollywood. Because um, he clearly had a very good relationship with his leading ladies, and we've talked about directors who do not have good relationships with their female actors. Yep. <laughs> um, yes, we have. Yeah, but I mean, even just the little story about um, the actresses in Gone with the Wind, like Vivian Leigh, who uh, would come to George Cukor even after he was kicked off of the project for advice, you know, shows... Uh, that rapport and that, um, you know, relationship that he was able to build uh, with his actors. Yeah, in a it way sounds that, like some actresses were getting some direction from him uh -huh. that they weren't able to get from your typical director in Hollywood. Right. Which is great that he's able to provide it. It's also a shame that, you know, it took so much time for the standard director to be able to provide that. Yeah. But it's good that he was able to do it. Um, and of course, you know, we have to remember that the focus of this episode is the Hepburns. And certainly, Gokor's job in both of these films was made tremendously easier by having two, uh, two women with such massive star power and yeah. massive talent. And range, uh, yeah, just range of emotions yeah. and abilities. Yeah, and two very fitting roles. It's just, yeah. in, in both cases, it's just a... Um, just a really perfect cocktail for a good movie. And it it, it proved effective. <laughs> right. <laughs> hey, it turns out if you put Catherine Hepburn, Cary Grant, and Jimmy Stewart in a movie, it's good. Yeah. Man, and if you put Audrey Hepburn in a musical with the guy who played the 
the main character who had in already the play. played it the role like a billion times on stage. Yeah, you know, Turns then you're gonna get good. you're gonna get a good mix. Plus, a director who actually cares enough to give um, the the female actors on set direction. Right, <laughs> right, like and that's, attention. That's a good combo. Go with the good combos, people. Yeah, you know, setting up setting up the film is honestly half the bo- half the battle. Um, I mean, it's one of the reasons why Alfred Hitchcock was kind of such uh, kind of a dick on set. Um, is because the fun part for him was setting up the movie. Yeah, and, and it was set, already over by the time he got there. It was just finishing it. Um, and that's not to say that not a lot of work happens on set, but half the battle happens before you get there. Yeah. Um, and the setup on both of these movies, not the nitty gritty of the process, but the broad strokes of who was involved, seems to play a big role in how yeah. effective and well-made and just plain good both of these films are. Yeah. All right, so with all that being said, we are taking a look at uh, another director next week, um, and we have a guest. We haven't had a guest in a while, and we have a returning guest. Uh, We are bringing Aaron Johnson back to the podcast, um, and we are not talking about comic books this time, uh, but we are talking about comics in the sense of Uh, comedic. uh, uh, (laughs) Jonathan made a joke, you guys. I made a joke. On the fly. I can do it sometimes. It was a joke about people who joke. It's kind of a meta joke. Oh, snap. We're so many levels. Um, but yes, we're talking about the director Mel Brooks, um, who's created uh, a career on comedy. And the specific films that we'll be talking about uh, will be Blazing Saddles from 1974, uh, Young Frankenstein, also from 1974, and High Anxiety from 1977. Yes. That is uh, correct. That will be Those a are very coming. interesting mix and a very uh, fascinating conversation, I'm sure, with Aaron. <laughs> yeah, it should be a very fun week, a uh, very fun set of movies to watch. I know we have a lot of weeks where the movies are kind of heavy, um, but I certainly wouldn't call any of these films heavy. No. They're very, very... They do have some themes in them, though, especially if we're talking about Blazing Saddles and true. stuff like that. that so that would be some yeah. great... Uh, yeah, a lot of conversation to go on. Yes. <laughs> Lots of the conversation that happens. And then we put it on a thing uh, that's online, and that's how you get podcasting. Boom. Yeah. We just yep. let you behind the curtain. Yeah. Oh, it's amazing. Behind the curtain <laughs> with the filmlings. Well, that's about all the time we have for this episode. If you have movie suggestions for us or just want to reach out, I can be found on Twitter at at JS Satchel. And I'm at Alex Geringer. And to find links to things that we talked about today, you can view them on the blog at thefilmlinks.com. If you like the show, let us know. Leave us a review on iTunes so other people know what we're all about. We definitely appreciate it. Talk to you next time. All right, see ya. Pause for Twitter. End of Twitter break. I'm putting that in there for the editor. (laughs) I still don't know how these get edited. I think it just happens magically. It just kind of, yeah, they just kind of pop up. Uh, (laughs) But you don't even know if they are edited because you don't listen to them. (laughs) I have no idea. We could, I could just be putting up like. (laughs) You could be putting up monologues. (laughs) I wouldn't know. I just cut myself out of the podcast entirely or you out of the podcast (laughs) entirely. Who knows? Separate them into two tubes. Exactly. Like it's some weird food product from the 90s. Yeah. I actually released these as like a cipher. I put part of your podcast from one week and another part of my podcast from another week together. Hashtag edit your own podcast.
Choose your own podcast Choose adventure. Your own <laughs> podcast adventure. Oh gosh.